This episode of the book of Acts weaves in and out of the temple. At the beginning of the story, the apostles are in the temple. And then they're forcibly taken out of the temple by the Sanhedrin, by the temple guard. They're arrested and put in a public jail. But during the night, an angel releases them from the prison. And instead of trying to get out of town, they immediately go back to where they came from. They go back to the temple and are teaching there again at daybreak of the next day. They're seized again from the temple and taken before the Sanhedrin for a hearing where they're solemnly warned not to continue teaching about Jesus and they are flogged and then they're sent on their way and they immediately go back to the temple and begin teaching and preaching and proclaiming Jesus as the anointed son of David. They're in the temple, taken out of the temple. They go back to the temple, they're taken out, to the temple, out of the temple. They're right back in the temple. They won't stay out of the temple. The portico of Solomon is like a magnet that keeps drawing the apostles back. And the reason they won't stay out of the temple is because they are continuing what Jesus began to do in the temple. We heard it briefly in our gospel text this morning. After Jesus went into the city of Jerusalem on, in his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, he immediately goes into the temple. He cleanses the temple. But he doesn't just clean out the temple and leave it. He cleanses the temple and he sets up his own ministry in the temple. And during the last week of his life, Jesus is using the temple the way the temple is supposed to be used. It's supposed to be a place for teaching the truth. It's supposed to be a place for healing. It's supposed to be a place where those who are under, this, under slavery to Satan can find release and liberation. And Jesus is doing all those things. He is the true temple. And he sets up true temple servants in the midst of the temple. The Jewish leaders, of course, have gotten rid of Jesus. But they didn't get rid of the apostles. And the apostles go back again and again to do exactly what Jesus had started to do. They go back to the temple and they carry out the same ministry that Jesus had. They're performing signs and wonders. They're healing people. They're cleansing the unclean. They're casting out demons. They're doing all the things that Jesus had done. Only they're doing things even more spectacular, more amazing than what Jesus had done. This was Jesus' promise to his disciples. Greater things than these you shall do. After my spirit comes on you, you'll do greater miracles than I did. Jesus healed with a touch. Jesus raised the dead by taking the hand of dead people. Jesus cleansed people who touched his garments. Jesus never healed people by casting a shadow. But Peter does. There's so much life and energy and healing going on in the temple that people from the surrounding district bring their sick and their demon-possessed and they're afflicted and they're lining the streets. All they want, they don't even need to touch Peter's, the hem of Peter's robe. All they want is for Peter to cast his shadow over them. At the beginning of Luke's Gospel, he tells us that the Spirit overshadowed Mary and she conceived Jesus. The Spirit overshadows the disciples at Pentecost, and they are filled with the Spirit. And now Peter becomes himself an overshadowing presence. He's filled with the Spirit, and he's acting like the Spirit. 
David sought refuge under the shadow of the Lord's wings. The people in Jerusalem are seeking refuge and healing and life under the shadow of Peter's wings. The Spirit is working through the apostles to carry on Jesus' mission. And Jesus' mission is a mission of healing. It's a mission of exorcism. It's also a mission of teaching. And the disciples are doing the same. That's the real point of contention between the Jewish leaders and the disciples in this passage. This passage is full of references to the disciples' teaching. When they're in prison, the angel tells them, go on your way, go back to the temple, begin teaching again. The next morning, somebody reports to the Sanhedrin, those men you put in the prison, we found them. They're in the temple, and they're teaching the people in the temple. When the disciples are brought before the Sanhedrin, the high priest says, didn't we tell you to stop teaching? And when they are finally released at the end of the story, they go back to the temple, they keep doing what they have been doing, which is teaching about Jesus, who is the Christ. The apostles are wonder workers. They do signs and wonders like Jesus, like Moses before Jesus. They are teachers. They are the teachers of Israel. They're servants of the word, and they're preaching and teaching the triumphant word of Jesus. The old age is fading away in the book of Acts. The high priests have been caretakers of the word. They're the teachers of the law. They're supposed to be the ones that instruct the people. But they no longer do that faithfully. New teachers have appeared. Teachers who teach with authority and not as the scribes. This is part of the good news. The good news is that Jesus has come to save us from our sins and liberate us from Satan. The good news is also that Jesus has brought a new collection of teachers for Israel. Teachers who will construct his people in the truth. The apostles can't stay out of the temple. And the Sanhedrin, the priests, and the elders of the people can't stop trying to stop them from teaching in the temple. And over the course of several chapters, their opposition to the disciples, to the apostles, has been increasing and intensifying. Peter and John heal a lame man outside the temple, and Peter and John are dragged in and warned not to continue speaking the name of Jesus. Now it's the whole twelve, it's that all the apostles are dragged in. And they're not just warned, but they're flogged. And shortly, in a couple of chapters, Stephen is going to become the first martyr. He's going to be killed because of his witness to Jesus. The opposition is intensifying and the opposition is increasingly baseless. The motivations of the priests and the elders and the Sanhedrin, the Senate of Israel, become increasingly clear. The word of the apostles is in fact a living two-edged sword which pierces to joints and marrow and exposes the thoughts and intents of the heart, and as long as they keep teaching, the caretakers of the law, the Jewish leaders, are continuing to expose the darkness in their own hearts. Why do they oppose what the apostles are doing, after all? People are sick, and through the apostles they're being healed. What does the Sanhedrin want? Sick people to stay sick? Demon-possessed people to stay demon-possessed? People who are afflicted to stay afflicted? Why would they oppose this? Luke tells us 
It's because of envy that they are filled with wrath and anger against the apostles. The people are being attracted to the apostles. They're listening to the apostles. They're going to the apostles for healing. All the things that the high priest and all of his associates are supposed to be doing for the people, the apostles are now doing. And as a result, the priests, the elders, are filled with envy. They had the same motivation to get rid of Jesus. Jesus was a rival. Jesus threatened their turf. And now the apostles are doing the same, and they need to get rid of Jesus all over again in the person of his apostles. And now in addition to the envy that's been growing and boiling within them, in addition to that, they now have a public humiliation. They publicly arrested the apostles in the temple. They put them in what Luke calls a public jail. They call them in for a public hearing before the Sanhedrin, and they can't find them. It's like a repeat of the resurrection. There the women go to the tomb looking for Jesus, wanting to serve Jesus' body, and they find instead an empty tomb with the stone rolled away because an angel had come. The apostles are put in a prison, but an angel visits them and lets them out and then carefully locks up the door of the prison. And the Sanhedrin can't even keep track of the apostles anymore. Not only can they not stop them, they don't even know where they are. And if you're already envious of the rival, and then they subject you to this kind of public humiliation, that is not going to calm things down. And as a result of this combination of public shaming and envy and jealousy, the Sanhedrin is ready to kill the apostles. They just want to get it over with. They've been warning them and warning them. They've given them plenty of chances to stop, but they just won't stop. If they have to kill them, it won't be the Sanhedrin's fault. It'll be the apostles' fault. They drove them to this. And the public hearing doesn't do any good to calm things either. They bring the apostles before them. They ask them, didn't we tell you to stop teaching? And instead of agreeing to stop teaching, the apostles reply, we must obey God rather than men. You can do what you want to us. We won't stop teaching and preaching what we have seen and heard. We won't stop preaching and teaching the risen Jesus. They have a message to proclaim. And as they summarize it, summarize it before the Sanhedrin, it's a message about God. It's a message about the God of Israel, what the God of our fathers have, has done. The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, has acted in the last days. He raised up Jesus as a great teacher and healer and prophet in Israel. He exalted Jesus to his right hand. He grants repentance and forgiveness of sins. He grants the Spirit. That's the message that the apostles have been preaching. God has brought all of his actions, all of his work, all of his plans and promises to a climax in Jesus Christ. He has raised him and exalted him to his right hand. Jesus is now reigning as Prince of Life and Savior. That's the message that the apostles have to give. That's the message that the Sanhedrin wants to stop. 
And they want to stop it because inherent in that message is a charge against the Jewish leaders. These apostles, they say, want to bring this man's blood on us. Jesus' blood. They're trying to charge us with Jesus' blood. They're trying to blame us for Jesus' death. It's an ironic thing for them to complain about. But they stood before Pilate. Pilate said, what shall I do with this man, this innocent blood? And the Jewish leaders all agreed, his blood be upon us and upon our children. And now they're complaining that the apostles are repeating what they themselves had said, that they're responsible for the blood of Jesus. That's what they've been saying. Every time the apostles speak, they've been charging the Jewish leaders with murder. Not just any murder, but murder the messenger of their own God. And they do it again. Here before the Sanhedrin, they summarize their message as a message about what God has done. In the midst of this message, the one thing that God is not, uh, is not responsible for, as they tell the story here, is putting Jesus on the wood. You hung him on the wood. You hung him on the tree. It's an allusion back to Deuteronomy, which warns about corpses hanging on trees. Those corpses that hang on trees are cursed. The apostles are saying, you treated the Prince of Life, the Savior, the one sent by God, you treated him as a cursed one. And you hanged him on a tree. See, when they're told, you're trying to blame us for Jesus' death, they don't back down. They don't soften their charge. They never do. They tell the truth before the Sanhedrin, yes, you are responsible. And no, we are not going to stop teaching this. Because... This is the truth. This is what we are witnesses to. There's a second speech in this hearing. There's a speech of Peter and the apostles, which summarizes the message about God that the apostles have been preaching. But then there's a second speech. When Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin went into executive session. They put the accused outside the room, and they consulted together. They were consulting about what to do about this lame man who had been healed. They couldn't deny that a miraculous thing had taken place by the name of Jesus. The facts were there. They still wanted to stop the apostles from talking about it, but they couldn't refute them. Here we get a speech from a Pharisee named Gamaliel. Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people. And he wants the Sanhedrin to, to adopt a wait-and-see policy toward the apostles. Leave them alone. See what happens to them. Uh, leave it in God's hands. He kind of appeals the case up to a higher court. Don't try to decide this ourselves. Let God decide whether or not these apostles are on God's side or not. Because if we oppose them and God is with them, then we'll find ourselves fighters of God. Theomachoi. Fighters of God. We don't want to find ourselves in a position of opposition to God. And if we keep opposing them, we might find out that that's where we are. Gamaliel said. So leave them alone. Let them go. It's a little too late. That Sanhedrin has already staked out its position. The Jewish leaders have already put Jesus to death. They've already arrested the apostles more than once. They've already tried to stop the apostles from teaching God's message of salvation. 
Now they're going to flog them. Soon they're going to start killing Christians. They've already taken their position. And they should already know that it's a losing battle. They have enough information already to know that God is on the side of these apostles. Look at how the apostles speak of Jesus' ministry. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on the wood. He is the one God exalted to his right hand. Verse 30 says, verse 30 says the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. It sounds like a reference to the resurrection. But in the context, it's not about the resurrection. It's about Jesus being raised up as a prophet, raised up as a horn of salvation in Israel, raised up as a great teacher. Jesus' ministry begins with a rising. Then he is put to death. But that's happened to all these other leaders that Gamaliel mentioned. They also rose. Thutis and Judas both rose. Thutis and Judas both gathered a following. Thutis and Judas both died. And their followers were scattered. And that was the end of things. Jesus' story and the story of Thutis and Judas are parallel to each other up to that point. But the Sanhedrin should already know that with Jesus, things have gone beyond that point. After all, they're still dealing with Jesus' followers. If Jesus were no better, no greater than a Thutis or a Judas, they wouldn't have to deal with the apostles. They would be scattered. They would be gone. They would be hiding out. They might have latched themselves onto a different Messiah by now. But they wouldn't have to be trying to suppress this movement. See, Jesus is not just a prophet who rises in Israel, a prophet who gains a gathering and a following in Israel. He's not just a, a, a leader, a prophet who dies in Israel. He's a prophet who rises again in Israel, a second time. Gathers his disciples again, a second time. Gives them his spirit so they can continue his ministry beyond his death. The Sanhedrin should draw that conclusion. How can the apostles be doing the things that they're doing? Shadows healing people. Miracles of a demon, a demon exorcism. How can they be doing that? How are they even around anymore? If Jesus was just another false prophet, another false messiah like Buddhist and Judas. But the Sanhedrin has already staked out their position as fighters of God and they're not convinced. They should know that the word of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus is not going to be overcome. Gamaliel thinks that the, the, the decision is still out. Jury is still out. We don't know what happened to Jesus yet. They have all the evidence they need to repent, seek forgiveness, to obey God and to receive his spirit as the apostles promise. Because it's already clear that the word of Jesus is not going to stop. And the word of Jesus is going to triumph. Of course, the word of Jesus doesn't triumph automatically. It triumphs because human beings continue to speak the word of Jesus. If the apostles were scared off by the Sanhedrin's warnings, if they said, well, now we're being beaten, this has gone too far, too much of a risk, we're going to quit. 
Or if they thought after Stephen, his stone, calling this off. Things have gotten serious. We're going to stop. Then the word of Jesus would not be triumphant. The word of Jesus is triumphant because the apostles, filled with the spirit of Jesus, speak with the courage of Jesus. The courage of the three men before Nebuchadnezzar that we heard about in our Old Testament lesson. These are the men who are threatened with the fiery furnace. They refuse to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image. We won't worship your image. Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll throw you in the fiery furnace. They say, throw us in. God might deliver us. He can do that. And, of course, we know the story. He does. But he might not. We might be burned to a crisp in the fiery furnace. That might be the outcome of this battle with Nebuchadnezzar. But we don't care. They're still defiant. Because they know God will rescue them on the other side of the fiery furnace. Even if he doesn't rescue them from the fiery furnace. And the apostles are the same. You can warn us. Do your worst. You can flog us. You can kill us. The worst you can do is put us on a cross. But we follow a Savior who came back from the cross, who rose a second time after death. And we will not stop teaching and proclaiming the word of Jesus. The triumph of the word of Jesus depends on the obedience of the apostles. Their obedience to God rather than men. Obedience, in fact, frames, references to obedience, frames their whole speech. We must obey God rather than men. And then at the end of the, their speech, they say, the, God gives the spirit to those who obey him. They have the courage to obey God rather than men because they've already received the spirit. And having received the spirit, they, they defy the Sanhedrin's authority. And in that act of obedience, they are given the reward of a further filling of the spirit. It's a virtuous cycle going on. The Spirit gives us the ability to, to act with uh, courage, to obey with courage. And as we obey with courage, the Spirit is given more fully to us so that we can obey more fully, more relentlessly, so we can get more of the Spirit, so we can continue to obey. That's what's happening to the disciples. And the triumph of the Word of Jesus in the first century depends on that. By the Spirit, they're being conformed to the Lord Jesus. They're conformed to Jesus in his ministry. They're casting out demons, healing, teaching as Jesus had taught in the temple. In the spirit of Jesus, they are also suffering. That's part of what it means to be conformed to Jesus. And because they have the spirit, because they're being conformed to, Je Je uh, conformed to Jesus, they aren't disappointed, discouraged, set off by being a beating. That they rejoice. Rejoice because their conformity to Christ has come to this point. That they not only minister in Jesus' name and repeat his miracles and signs and wonders, but are considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. If we want to see the word of Jesus triumph, if we want to see the word of Jesus spread and multiply, this is the kind of courage we need. This is the kind of joyous courage we need. It's the kind of joyous courage that can only come 
from Jesus only come from His Spirit. History is filled with people who rose and then fell. People who gathered and then scattered. People who lived, did great things, and died and were never seen again. That is not Jesus. Jesus is not another Buddhist, another Judas. He's the twice risen. He rises, he's put to death, and then again he rises. He gathers, the disciples scatter, and then again he gathers. The word of Jesus is unbeatable. It is a triumphant word because it will never be overcome. Because Jesus will never be overcome himself. Jesus is the twice risen, and he is our Lord, our Savior, and we speak in the courage of his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you raised him up as a great prophet in Israel. And that after he was put to death on the cross, you raised him again. We thank you that you gathered disciples, and even though they were scattered at the death of Jesus, you regathered them and filled them with the Spirit. And we thank you, Father, that you've given that same Spirit to us. We pray that we would walk in that Spirit, that we would speak faithfully, courageously, the Word of Jesus, and that we would rejoice when we're considered worthy to suffer for his name. We pray this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen.